last time we were here, I was wanting to give you a report of some of the things that are happening. So I wanted to take the time to do that uh, before sharing the word with you. Um, we were part of a marriage enrichment weekend uh, with Pastor Raleigh Wingfield and his people. And they actually brought us in for a weekend with the couples so that we could uh, just really immerse ourselves in the word and uh, restoring and healing marriages and relationships. Um, another thing that we were able to do was uh, to graduate or to release 10 certified life coaches into the women's shelter we've been serving in. And, and so these women are now released not only to serve the women in the, res the, uh, the residents of the shelter, but also uh, in their own families and in the community. And uh, on all of this has been directly connected to how you have supported us. So I find it interesting that you would share that today um, because that's exactly what has happened uh, with, with all that we have been doing. And so we just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you, thank you uh, so very much for how you have helped us and, um, through really uh, through the months and the years uh, because we could not do uh, what we do without your help and your support. So we just wanted to say thank you so much. I wanted to uh, just to share with you today from the topic of listen, lift, and launch. You can say that, listen, lift, and launch. Once again, listen, lift, and launch. Um, my wife and I have built our relationship off of uh, a pact, an agreement that we made with one another. We had been married um, four or five months the honeymoon was over, and we were starting to have all kinds of communication conflicts because we were from two different um, worlds. Uh, <laughs> I was born and raised in inner city St. Louis uh, of two and a half million people, uh, uh, you know, urban, uh, diverse um, world. Um, the Midwest is very different, a um, lot of trafficking. Some of you have read, probably heard of the stories of uh, the 30s and the 40s with the gangsters and the mobsters and all of that, and that's St. Louis. Uh, I see you nodding your head back there, Gene. <laughs> so I kind of grew up in the environment of the hustle and the bustle of big city. And I married this girl from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, so. I'm from a place of two and a half million. She's from Dauphin County, 250,000. Very different world, very different dynamics. Um, even in our family upbringing and culture, she grew up in a very quiet household. I grew up in a very loud household. <laughs> I don't mean screaming and hollering and yelling at each other, but I come from a very expressive family. My wife always says that uh, we're a bunch of lawyers in my house because when there's conflict, when there's disagreement, uh, when we misunderstand each other, we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk until, she's nodding her head, until we get an understanding. That's just how we have been, that's how we were raised. My father um, was a hardworking man. He worked for Pillsbury Corporation for almost 40 years. He, re he retired from there 
and he was from the South. My dad is from Tennessee. Uh, my mom's family was from Mississippi. And so they were some of those African-Americans who migrated up north. To them, they thought that was north to be in Missouri. Um, yeah, they thought Missouri was north. <laughs> um, St. Louis is a Midwest city, but it has a strong Southern influence. And so I grew up in that. But my dad would always tell us, it's okay to disagree. He said, you just don't have to be disagreeable. Isn't that interesting? So he taught us how to work it out, talk it out. I remember that at 11 years old, um, my younger sister and I used to always get into fights. Nobody said amen. <laughs> Sir, you didn't have any sibling fights, did you? <laughs> and, um, and one day uh, after, uh, it's part of life, and one day after one of our big fights, and we got our punishment, and we decided we didn't want the punishment anymore. So as two little children, I was 11, she was nine, we made a decision that from now on, we're not, we're not gonna fight. We're going to talk things out and walk, work it out. Two children, why? Because her dad has sold a seed in us that you, it's okay to disagree. You don't have to be disagreeable. You can, he used to say, you can make your point without having to fight to make your point. Why I say that? Because I come from that background and that upbringing. Carol came, comes from a world where when- You don't deal with anything. You just keep living, you, but you don't actually deal with the issue. Yeah. And so we get married. Four years into the marriage, she stops talking. I'm like, what's up? Before I say four years, I mean four months into the marriage, she's, she stops talking. And I'm like, what's the problem? What, what did I do? What did I say? Why do you stop talking? And then she wouldn't even answer that question. <laughs> and so um, here I am. I'm very different. She's very different. We, uh, some of you have read our book, so you know what I'm talking about. We found out that our alphabet wasn't the same. My A wasn't the same as her A. My B wasn't the same as her B. Go through the rest of the alphabet. C is not the same as her C. So if your alphabet is not the same, then your words are not the same. And if your words aren't the same, the sentences aren't the same. And even though you're using English words, the meaning isn't the same that I had in my head as to what she was hearing in her ears. And the same for her, as she was trying to communicate with me, I'm thinking from my world. And so we sat down together and made a pact. And the pact was this, we're going to agree that no matter how you say, what you say, I'm gonna to choose to believe that you love me. Start there, I'm gonna to choose to believe that you love me. And that what you said, you were not trying to hurt me. How many of you know the church needs to walk in that? I didn't understand what you said. I didn't know why you said it, but I'm gonna to choose to believe that you were not intentionally trying to hurt me. We didn't know that that little agreement between a young couple who was only 22, 21 years old, and here we are 37 years later, and we still live in the spirit of that. Why? Because we're human beings, and you don't always know always how to say 
what you're trying to say, how to express what you're trying to express. But when you make the decision and the choice that I know you, I know your heart, I know that you weren't trying to hurt me, and so I'll just let that go. I forgive. I'll release that because I know you weren't trying to hurt me. Isn't that amazing? And so I share that with you today because part of what it's going to take, a big part of what it's going to take for the church to minister in this era and this time in America is going to be able to do just that, to operate in that level of agape love of God. Do you know that's what God does, has done for all of mankind? He says, I love you right where you are. I love you and I accept you right where you are. He knows we don't always say it right, we don't always do it right, but he says, I love you and accept you right where you are. And then he goes the next step, and I love you, and I love you too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> That's agape. I love you right where you are, but also I love you too much to let you stay where you are. And I believe that for us to have effective ministry in America today, the church has to operate, all of us individually, in our homes, in our families. We have to operate at that level of love. Wow, bless the Lord. I want to pray as we get started. I'm going to let you sit down. Now. Um, when we first moved to Harrisburg, I was struggling and dealing with that different dynamic because I'm not from this part of the country. And so the Lord, there's this prayer that the Lord gave me and my wife to pray every time we get up and minister in Harrisburg. Uh, because we began to notice as I was teaching and I was sharing that people were coming away from our services and our meetings uh, with offense or feeling like they had been accused of something or feeling condemnation. And so the Lord gave us this little prayer to pray. And... And I wanted to just pray that today as we're getting started. Uh, some of you have probably seen our videos and everything, so you've heard this prayer repeated every single time. But that was the strategy because I realized that when you're crossing cultures and you're crossing different mindsets and different life's experience, that all of us, we can only operate out of the experience and the culture that we're in. But when we cross over into each other's cultural understandings and life's experience, you have to do what God gave this little young couple to do. I'm going to choose to believe that you meant it for my good. I'm going to choose to believe that you love me. I'm going to choose to believe that you weren't trying to hurt me. Isn't that awesome today? So, Lord, let's just pray together. Lord, we just thank you for this time that you have given us to experience your life together, to experience your love together. And though we are working and operating in a nation that is full of division and full of misunderstandings, we trust you, Lord, to help us in our families, in our relationships, in, in our churches, in our ministries, in our businesses, to walk in love to walk in understanding, to walk in agreement. And so, in the authority of Jesus Christ, we stand against every work of the enemy to cause us to feel accused by this word, to feel condemned by this word, or to be offended by this word. Help us, Lord, as the ones who are delivering your word to clearly articulate 
your mind, your heart, your thoughts that you are sending to us. Clearly articulate your word. We decrease. Chris and Carol, we decrease that you would increase in this place. It's not about us. It's all about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Come on, give the Lord a hand. Bless the Lord. Thank you, Lord. I wrote down my thoughts, and I was up writing to about 4 o'clock this morning. <laughs> so if I look sleepy, that's why. <laughs> um, it's been a pretty busy week for us, and it was a busy weekend. We told Pastor Paul, even yesterday, we were invited to be part of another marriage ministries outing. They, went, they wanted to go bowling, so we went bowling. So I haven't bowled in five or six years, and so um, we're a little sore today. <laughs> so if I'm not as demonstrative as we usually are each time we come, that's the reason why. <laughs> Everything hurts. <laughs> oh, man. I want to begin from 2 Timothy, the third chapter verses 10 through 12. You, most of you, all of us are familiar with this particular passage. As I said, I want to talk with you about listen, lift, and launch. Second Timothy, the third chapter, verses 10 through 12. And then I'm going to Skip verse 13 and go to 14, the, the um, top part of, the, of verse 14. But it says, this is Paul writing to Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all, the Lord delivered me. Then verse 12, he says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But you must continue in the things, going to verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Thank you, Lord. As we were leaving the grocery store on one Monday afternoon, Carol and I came across the path of a young minister. He was frustrated and at wit's end. He literally stopped us right at the entry of a giant. <laughs> people were trying to get past us but he was just so distraught he just kind of just poured out his heart there in the moment and we were trying to push him off to the side because people were trying to come in and out but he literally just just unloaded right there in the moment he was just so frustrated um, because everything literally everything was going wrong in his life from his wife's failing business to the lawnmower going out. He went on and on about one thing after another that was going wrong. He said he's been fasting and praying and giving tithes and offerings, and yet nothing was breaking through for him. 
Does that sound familiar for anybody? <laughs> we took a few minutes to tell him a little bit about our journey before explaining what God had revealed to us about the purpose for our ministry in Harrisburg. We told him about our weekly equipping leaders gathering. We still gather on Friday nights and how we place the emphasis of our teaching on the personal life and the discipline of the leader that uh, we offer teaching and training and insight to equip leaders so that the soul care can take place within themselves as well as their households, their organizations, their neighborhoods and the communities because a lot of the young leaders in Harrisburg, there's focusing on the outward stuff and not on what has to happen in here. We've revealed to him, we've gone through the loss of income, the loss of friends by death and other circumstances. We've gone through the loss of a home by foreclosure. We've been through the embarrassment of a vehicle repossession and many other disappointments and challenges. But we told him we also teach leaders by example and by biblical principles how to persevere and how to overcome. We teach them how to hear from God in the midst of the storms and how to make adjustments. This is a tough one, especially for young, young people to hear. You got to make adjustments. And sometimes the adjustments means you got to stop. I didn't say quit, but you need to stop what you're doing and reset, kind of regroup. Anybody know what I mean by that? And then come back out fighting again. <laughs> Because sometimes they like to just keep going and going, and they think things are going to change if I keep going. But sometimes, don't you? You have to stop. Let me think about this. Let me think about how I'm doing this. Let me think about why <laughs> I'm doing this. We share this with you today because more and more leaders and churches are coming to this level of frustration as they come to grips with the need to discern the difference between what might be their own imagination, might be their own good intentions, what might be false expectations in ministry, all of that's part of leadership. What are your real expectations? Versus what is the actual hope of God's calling upon their lives? We certainly had specific visions in our hearts when we first moved to Harrisburg, we had very specific expectations because we had received, at that point, at least 10 years of prophetic words over our lives. And how many of you know when you get a prophetic word, you got a picture in your head as to how that's going to come to pass? <laughs> and not only did we have prophetic words, we also had 17 years of successful ministry in St. Louis. So we not only had an expectation, we also had an experience, a very positive experience. So our expectation was, well, God's going to at least do what he's already done. <laughs> Isn't he? Isn't he going to use us the same way he did in St. Louis? where we bought a building and then we bought another building and we tore down, a, we bought some property and built a parking lot and, and had all kinds of wonderful outreach, everything from uh, ministering to uh, unwed mothers to crises pregnancy to scholarships and helping people with their bills and, getting, uh, and uh, 
and I mean housing, we had it, we were doing it all. So at least we're going to get to do that when we get to Harrisburg. Right, God? <laughs> and it took more than 10 years of fighting through the same battles that this young minister was talking to us about to finally begin to grasp what God actually meant by what he told us to do in Harrisburg. Everything changed when we finally let go of our expectation and our vision and stepped into God's actual plan and purpose for us. And that brief conversation with that young man, it kind of sparked a realization that we need to, we're going to need to focus on this topic and this issue for a while. So for a little over a month or so, we've been encouraging leaders to seek God until they know what Paul says, what is the hope of his calling. We've been encouraging leaders and believers to rise to the, champ, to the challenge. Next month, we'll mark the end of 14 years of serving in Harrisburg. And as you know, we started out as pastors trying to get people to come out, come into our, come to our services in a building. And today we are community life coaches serving outside of the walls of the typical church facility, <laughs> working with and connected with people in their world. We're in their world. God wouldn't let us make them come into our world. He made us come out of our world and get into theirs. He made us get on their territory. He told us to get involved in their lives. Wow. So a couple of weeks ago, a very dear couple sold, literally, they sold thousands of dollars of business expertise into helping us with the marketing side of our life coaching business. And after a week of uh, very long days and late nights, <laughs> we finally put together our mission statement. And it reads like this. You'll find this very interesting. We are the leading producers of innovative leadership life coaches, specializing in the human service industry and with community outreach organizations. We listen to people, we lift people, and we launch people. Sounds like a good commercial, doesn't it? <laughs> and that mantra or that slogan as it's sometimes called, is what we're here to impart to you today, that we lift, we listen, we lift, we launch. In order to be effective in this era in America, we must receive the wisdom and the strategy that's necessary for this time. Although our message remains the same, and we know the message that God loves people, and he sent his son to die for all of mankind. And through his son, Jesus Christ, all mankind can be saved from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. And ultimately, we're all looking forward to be removed from the very presence of sin. Somebody say amen. <laughs> that message remains the same. It will never change. But we must understand that the method or the strategy that's necessary to connect
people to that message. That must change. The strategy to get them that message. The method to get that message to them. That's what has to change. I'm not saying everybody has, and every pastor has to close down their building like we did and get out on the streets like we did. No, that was just the particular strategy he gave us. Because believe us, in our hearts, we still want to get a building and we want to be able to bring them into community because that is a very necessary part of the growth of young believers to understand community, that you can't do this all by yourself. <laughs> but because they're so untrusting right now and family situations have been so chaotic, a lot of them, they, they don't trust right away. So we have to stay on their territory until we can build the trust and bring them into community. Our country is divided. We already know that. Our communities are divided. Our families are divided. We're divided by ethnicity, by economics, by religion, by politics, by gender. And still gender is male, female. Just wanted to make that. <laughs> but we're divided even there. We're divided by generations, by age groups. We're divided by ideologies. We have communication barriers. We got concept barriers. We got cognitive barriers. And when I say cognitive, I mean we all think and process information differently. And we have cultural barriers. And since we don't understand various differences between, for instance, Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Cubans, Dominicans. In fact, I remember I caught, uh, Carol and I caught a, a, a particular pastor was sharing about, uh, he started a church, a Spanish-speaking church in Florida, and still he couldn't get all of the Spanish-speaking people to come together. Because he particular, I, I don't remember what, what he was, but he couldn't get the Cubans to come and meet with the Dominicans. And, the, and so even though they all spoke the same language, they're culturally different, and he couldn't get them to come together because of the cultural differences. Africans, I don't know if you guys have known this, there is a difference between Africans and African Americans. Many Africans have been taught before they come to America to not trust African Americans. They've been told not to trust us. Our skin's the same, our features are the same, but they've been told when you get to America, don't trust those African Americans. Talk about differences, huh? <laughs> you may not have known that, but yes. So it's been a big deal when Carol and I and others, Joe Green and I, have come and you had Africans guest and we were here. It was a big deal. You may not have known the dynamics of what was going on in the room, but we knew. <laughs> you just didn't know that that dynamic was going on right here in this room when Africans and African Americans were together. It was a big deal. Some of them struggled to come and hug us and embrace us and even speak to us. They had to press past 
what they had been told and reach out anyway. We had to press past what we had been told and reach out to them. So believe me, the issues in America are way beyond just black and white. Even amongst us, people of color, barriers, man, <laughs> conflict, confusion, stereotypes, bias. Wow. Isn't that something? And then as we're seeing Harrisburg filling up with more East Indians, Chinese and Japanese and Koreans, Arabic people and so on and so on. Something's happening, guys. And, and we can easily make assumptions and take offense at what they say or what they do because their customs and their habits and their languages and their decisions and their disciplines and their ideas don't always fit the way America does things. To become a Christian, hear me clearly, to become a Christian means that you become a kingdom citizen. It's not, doesn't mean you become Americanized. Hear me clearly, to become a Christian is not to become Americanized. To become a Christian is not becoming Americanized. It means I come into the culture of the kingdom of God. I do, it's not becoming, I'll put it in on another territory. Christians that get people that come into the, name, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ don't suddenly become European. Let me put it on my home continent. It doesn't mean I become African or I become Asian when I get saved and I happen to be led by someone of another culture. The reason why this is important is because many of the missionaries from America and from Britain went into Asia and Africa and they start making them adopt their culture as a part of being a Christian. And what we're looking at today is a pushback against that because now that we have raised up young ministers and pastors to read the Bible and to study the word of God for themselves, they found out I don't have to be European. I don't have to be American in order to be who God has made me to be. I can still operate in my culture and be a kingdom citizen. Why is this important? Because for what's happening in America right now, in my conversation with the two brothers yesterday for two hours, we were talking about how the previous administration allowed all these immigrants and illegals to come into America. Now, if we can go on fighting and debating about that, or we can respond. It's too late to now to debate about it. They're here. They're here. It's sort of like if, if, if any of us, and some of you have been through that, if you have a, if your daughters have a child out of wedlock and the baby's born, it's not time to now fuss and fight about the circumstances that led to the baby being born. The baby's here now. And now we must respond in the love of God to the mother, the father, the baby. That's what we have with this influx 
of cultures and peoples that have now flooded into Harrisburg and South Central Pennsylvania and all across America. And it has forced us, this is what I shared with the brothers, I said, it has forced us because for years we have been told to go, go into all the world. <laughs> and since we wouldn't, God allowed an administration to come in that would bring the world to our doorstep. And though we don't like and disagree with the way it was done, the point is, it's done now. And now it's time for us to listen, lift, and launch. Why is it important, the things that I'm saying to you now? It's because it's, when you and I became a citizen of this new culture, the kingdom of God, we came under the authority of another government. And my political affiliation is not an elephant or a donkey. You know what my affiliation is? It's an old rugged cross and an empty grave. Somebody say, yes, Lord. That's my political symbol. It's a cross and an empty grave. Bless the Lord. It's important that we see this so that we can become true fishers of men, not merely recruiters of another religious, political, and national ideology that that's not rooted in the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Remember the Great Commission? Matthew 28. 19 through 20, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And I, you know why, it's come, why that, uh, that last phrase is so important? Jesus said, teach them to do what I commanded you. So then you got to go to, what did he command us to do? You find that in Matthew 22, verse 37 and 40. He said, Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So then will you put the great commission and you connect it to the greatest commandment. Here's what Jesus is saying. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And teach them to love your neighbor as you do yourself. Yes, Lord. Do you hear me today? Thank you, Lord. I'll explain it this way. When I gave my heart to the Lord as a four-year-old little kid in ghetto Northside, St. Louis, Missouri, even though I had become a new citizen of the kingdom of God, I never stopped being a black kid. I was still black, <laughs> which became known as black American. Then they changed it to, y'all remember these changes? Then they changed it to Afro-American, and then they changed it to African-American. It's okay if you call me black. I don't get offended. <laughs> 
<laughs> All these political correct changes, and now you know, how should we refer to you? I'm just Chris. <laughs> Man. God never took my culture when I got saved. He didn't change my ethnicity and the key uniqueness of that identity. He didn't take that away from me. I still clap on the second and the fourth beat in a four-beat measure. What does Pastor Chris mean by that? Whereas you may, most Americans will say, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will go. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. God didn't change that. That's my expression. What he has changed is the object of my expression so that in my musical expression, I'm not offering it to demons. I'm not using my gifts and talents to exploit people. It's the object. And now that he is the object of my worship, he didn't change my ethnicity. He didn't change my uniqueness. He just said, send it my way. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. I still tend to write and sing songs in minor keys. Because that's how we are as a people. Culturally, black people tend to write most of our songs in minor keys. I tend to be very rhythmic in my expressions. My word choices are deeply rooted in my upbringing and my life's experience. And it's the same for all of us in this room, each and every one of you coming from your family and your culture, your ethnicity, and sometimes even your nationality. And God didn't change that when you got saved. But what he's requiring of us in this time in America is that when we encounter believers coming from a different ethnicity and a culture, that we begin to understand where they're coming from, what they are about. And even when it conflicts with how we would normally do it, don't see it as they're doing something wrong. That's what gets the church in trouble. When someone else's expression is different from ours. Here's another thing that gets us in trouble. If I were to say, as an African-American, you are wrong if you don't clap on two and four. Everybody should be clapping on two and four. God says everybody should be clapping on two and four. No. That's where we get in trouble, when we teach a particular method or style as if though that were the principle. And it's something everybody has to do. What you'll find is, and I remember going through this study when we were preparing to become senior pastors, that every word in the Bible, every word has one meaning. It doesn't have different interpretations. It has one meaning. Every principle, one meaning. Every word, one meaning. But it has different applications. And where we've been messing up is we've been fighting over the meaning 
of passages of scriptures. And therefore, we never really get to learn and understand how to apply it. Hear me clearly. One interpretation of scripture, not private interpretations, one interpretation, many applications. That's what it means to live by the principles of the word of God, principally how certain things may be applied in my culture. It may be a different application, same principle, different application as to how it must be worked out in a Spanish culture in an Asian culture, in an African culture, in a European culture, in an American culture. Same word, one meaning applied differently across cultural lines. So that's why I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. Remains the same, rather it's gates with thanksgiving. Same word, different application, different expression. Do you hear me today? Come on, say amen. We now have a granddaughter whose roots are in the Ukraine. Her grandparents on her mother's side are Ukrainian. She's going to be, she's quite a mix. Ukrainian, Canadian, African, and American. She's quite a mix. You can see why we're so proud of her. Yes, I've got a picture of her on my phone, and I'm ready to show it to you at a moment's notice. She is a manifestation of a revelation of the incredible diversity in the kingdom of God. The unique combinations of who she is, it won't change once she comes into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. She will always carry those uniquenesses and distinctions within her. And the reason why this is important is because we've learned that the first thing we must do in this new era of social media disconnection, that's really what it is, and bias and indifference, we must first learn to listen to people. Listening is not merely letting people talk and then waiting until they shut up so you can say what you want to say. <laughs> listening is not filling in the blanks in your head of what you want them to say and what you feel like they should say. Listening involves taking in not only what they are saying, but trying to understand why are they saying this? This is what we had to learn to do as a couple. We now teach this in our life coaching. We're, we had to teach this skill to the staff of a women's shelter. It's a skill that needs to be taught to social workers. One woman who went through our course, she retired from Hershey Medical. She said it's a skill that even doctors need to learn how to listen to people. Don't just come in to tell them how you want to treat them and what you want to do and what they're doing wrong. No, no, listen, find out the why. So the moment someone starts saying something and it's like, I don't quite agree with that, go to the next step. Why are they saying this? Why 
are they doing this? That's what we had to learn to do with each other. Why? And we actually would ask each other that question. Why you say that? Some of you, because of your family upbringing and background, never had an opportunity to ask why. You were trained non-verbally non to never ask. Don't state your opinion. You didn't have a voice. And even after you got married, you continued to live that way and you raised your children that way. That when there's disagreement, when there's misunderstanding, we don't challenge it, we don't talk about it, we don't deal with it, we just go on. But I come from a culture where, oh no, <laughs> we're gonna talk about it. Here's why this is so important, because Carol thought that if we have this level of talk, she thought it meant our marriage was gonna break up. Why does she think that? Because she watched her mom go through horrible separation. And in her young mind growing up, as mom Mary was going through that hard time of the family falling apart, here's her young 10, 11 year old daughter associating verbal conflict with breaking up of the family. Now here she is, 10 years later, she's married and she's in verbal conflict with her husband. So yes, she's shutting down. Why is she shutting down? Because in her mind, talking it out means we're gonna get a divorce and I don't want a divorce, so I'm gonna be quiet. I'm not gonna say anything. Collision of quote of cultures. So God had to give us a way. He had to give us a way for each of us to get past the barrier. Why won't she talk to me? Versus why, if we do talk, we're gonna get we're gonna break up. You want to talk about an impasse? If we talk, we're gonna break up. If we don't talk, we're going to break up. What was the answer? Covenant. We made a covenant. We made a covenant. This is how we must operate in the house of God. I'll make a covenant. That even though I don't understand this right now, I know your heart. I'm going to continue in the things that we learned about each other. The things that I'm assured of. That's what Paul was saying to Timothy. Continue in the things that you're sure of. I'm sure that you love me. I'm sure that you're not trying to hurt me. I'm sure that you believe in me. So we're going to move and build off of that. Bless the Lord. So listening, as we teach, is absolutely necessary to try to get to a person's why. It's the most essential part of all of what we've been doing in Harrisburg. You ever ask, well, what do you guys really do as life coaches in the inner city? 
we do a lot of listening. You'd be surprised if you were to follow us around how much listening that we do. You'd probably be saying things like, well, aren't you going to say something to them? Did you just hear how messed up their beliefs are? Aren't you going to correct them for saying that? The answer from us would be no, because we're still trying to get to their why. Not just what they're saying. I'm trying to get to the why. Why are you saying that? Why do you feel that way? See, that's more than just, well, where you get that from? <laughs> Where'd you get that crazy notion from? That shuts people off. Because they've already been shut off by family, relatives, friends, bosses. And so we're there to listen. And I want to get to the why. We're not focused on what they're saying. We're trying to get to the why so we can avoid jumping to conclusions about them or getting offended. I can tell you, I've had a lot of cases where I, I could have been easily offended by some of the things that the women say in the shelter. Got to understand, most of the time I'm the only man in an all-female environment, most of which are people of color, women who have been hurt and abused, beat up by black men. And here comes this black man. My very presence is an offense to many of them. So we've learned that there's an awful lot of difference between what was what people hear and what was actually said. To this, I want to address something. Last month, as you know, my wife was talking about purification and the preparation process of Esther. And she likened Esther's process and compared it to the discipline that she instituted in our family's eating habits. Because eating habits, ours, it was destroying our family. Here's some ethnic and cultural insight you might not know about, about black people. The top three killers of African Americans is not law enforcement. Am I right, Gene? It's not law enforcement. I know the media keeps telling you that. It's not policemen. It ain't even racism. It, it's not even black on black crime. Top three killers of African Americans are heart disease, strokes, and cancer. It's a wide open door of the enemy in our community. I don't know where it came from, don't know what ancestral generational curse that broke that open. But as, as a people, as a whole, the top three killers of African Americans is heart disease, strokes, and cancer. All of which are primarily caused by our lifestyle and our food choices. This does not apply to every ethnic group, but most African American doctors and nutritionists have for decades, decades, been urging black folks to eat more fruit and vegetables and drink more water. <laughs> Mom laughed, because that's the first thing she heard from my wife when we came back, drink water, drink more water. <laughs> 
we've been urged to cut back on eating too much processed meat. And we did mention pork, but we also been told to we drink too much fruit juice, sweet drinks. We eat too much fish, poultry, poultry, chicken, eggs, and other high cholesterol foods. You may not have known that about African-Americans. It is a major issue for us. And African-American doctors and nutritionists have told us, change the way we eat. We're killing ourselves, not the police, not the white man. We're killing ourselves because we won't eat right. That's what we were referring to last time we were here. So we're not talking about some spooky new age health nuts <laughs> or some out of balance religious ritual, but for our overall health as a targeted ethnic group. So what my wife expressed last month was my, even my own father has had heart disease issues He's had to go through bypass surgery. Last month, they had to rush him to the hospital from church because he had another episode with his heart. My mother had a stroke a couple of years ago. Both of my brothers have had heart attacks. All have had to change their diets. All are now eating more fruits and vegetables and drinking more water. <laughs> All of them have had to cut out processed meat and cut back on eating pork and fish and chicken. See, that's something that's unique to our ethnic group. It's not in every ethnic group, but for us, we have to cut back. Something about the design of our bodies says you don't need in excess these particular foods, but you do need to eat fruit and vegetables and drink water. So that's what we were referring to. One of our sons can't eat fish at all. Not religious, not, not a religious purpose. He can't. Another son can't eat peanuts. It's part of what's in us. So why do I bring this up? Because we, when we listen to what other ver various ethnic groups express about their habits, and their choices and their decisions and walking out the will of God for their lives, we can't take offense at the practice that they must adopt to walk out a principle of the Bible. It's easy to get confused and think that we're talking about what might be considered a sinful practice when black people talk about food. As African Americans, we're not talking about sin or defilement when we bring up our, di our diet. We're not talking about that. When the religious people challenged Jesus and the Apostle Paul about eating certain foods, they were talking about what was lawful and what was considered to be sinful. With people of color today, we're not talking about law or sin at all. In our case, we're talking about health and what's necessary for us to discipline ourselves as a people to close the door of heart disease, strokes, and cancer that are running rampant in our families due to what we eat and how we live. So the past few years, we've lost seven leaders in our home church in St. Louis. 
the past 10 years, we've lost seven leaders in my home church, all due to heart disease and cancer. So it's a big deal for us. We're not saying every ethnic group has to do this, but we do. Because what's the, what's the principle? The principle is don't open the door to the enemy to take you away from your purpose. So the discipline we must remember, Paul said, if we're going to be soldiers and we're in a fight, then I beat my body and I bring it under subjection. lest I become disqualified. In the, in the community in Harrisburg, since this is a big deal, we are required as leaders to model in front of these women, most of which are dealing with these issues. We have to model it in front of them. We can't tell them to do something that we aren't willing to do ourselves. Otherwise, we become just another set of hypocritical pastors. Do you hear me today? Do you understand a little bit better where we're coming from? Culturally. So when there's a disconnect, when talking about the cultural applications of listening, all of us must learn to listen to one another with, without the religious bias or taking offense at one another's cultural practices or requirements. As African Americans, we're not addressing the spiritual or doctrinal issues of eating certain foods. We're talking about a principle of disciplining ourselves. Why is this important? Because the Apostle Paul said this. Again, understanding we're not talking about what's lawful or sinful for us to eat because actually Jesus said, whatever comes into a man, that ain't the issue. The issue is what comes out of you. <laughs> what's coming out of your life, what's coming out of your mouth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24, he said, where's the scriptural backup for what you're saying, Pastor Chris? Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. I can eat anything I want, but not everything is expedient or helpful for me. So there are certain things I deprive myself of so that I can complete the course that God has for me. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things, are, not all things edify or not everything builds me up. Then he makes this statement. He said, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Then if you go to verse 31 of that same chapter, he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink, and that's very important because I come from a community. Um, I've noticed since I've been living here in South Central Pennsylvania, there are a lot of believers that don't have any problem with drink, with drinking wine or some other drinks like that. But where I'm from, they would be totally offended if they found out that you drink wine. Totally offended would tell you you're not saved. So you see what I mean about all these cultural differences? And you 
can't make judgments on each other because of those cultural differences. Very important. But here's the other thing that Paul said. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. And that's why that was so important for us to share this. Because he says, give no offense. For the years and the time that we've been coming here, we wanted to make, we wanted to make sure that there is no, you understand our hearts on these matters. We're living and operating and working in an incredibly diverse world in inner city Harrisburg. And everybody doesn't understand and everybody doesn't get the discipline that we must operate in. And so we ask of you that for the understanding that's necessary. We ask of you, just as the church family, to, to pray for us because it is tough to navigate these things in such a diverse environment where we're dealing with Latinos and what they believe and, and white people and what they believe and black people, what they believe and how each one of us must interact and the Asians and the East Indians and the Native Americans and oh my Lord, and now we've got the Arabic people coming in and everybody's got these different principles and ways that they're trying to live and trying to interact. And God is teaching us to, first of all, listen to them. Find out where they're coming from. Get God's heart concerning them. The next thing we must do is lift people. Some of you have heard us talk about this before. Over the last couple of years, Cumberland Valley has been on the front lines helping us to make small deposits in the lives of severely hurting people. Um, lifting involves operating in that agape love I mentioned. Last, uh, I'll, share it, I'll, I'll share it with you this way. Because of you guys, we've been able to train and teach other coaches how to listen to people and how to lift people. Lifting is giving people the agape love of God. Lifting, you can see in John, the 15th chapter, where it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Many scholars have taken that, have explained that we're where the King James Version or the New King James Version where it says anybody that does not bear fruit, he takes away. It actually means he lifts them up. He changes their position on the trellis so that they can receive sunlight and receive the nutrition flow into their lives. So lifting for us has been coming into people's lives and changing their position, changing how they're growing in the inner city community. Lifting people is being committed to God's purpose for their lives. Um, lifting involves implementing what we call the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost, lost son principle. Remember how Jesus talked about the lost sheep? A shepherd will leave the 99 and go after the one. Lifting means being willing to see that a person is worth searching for them when they get lost along the way. Lifting is 
being willing to see a person as a priceless possession of God, that God will seek them out just like that woman who tore up the house to find that one coin, that lifters are those who are willing to do whatever it takes to get to them. Lifting is being willing to be like that father whose, whose son was wasteful. We call it the prodigal son. The word prodigal really means wasteful son. You know why he was so wasteful? Not because he spent everything, his inheritance. Not only that, but he didn't see the value of what he had. He said to his dad, you're dead to me. He had no appreciation for what he had. And I can tell you, we work in a community where there's a lot of people that don't appreciate what they have. And so he sent us in as lifters of even the ones who don't appreciate anything right now. Because when they go through their fall down, somebody has to be there to lift them up when they return. Wow. And being committed is, being, lifting is also mean, means being committed to God's purpose in a person's life. In Jeremiah 29, 13, he says, For I know the thoughts I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And even though that word came in the context of the Lord speaking through the prophet and telling them, you're going to go through 70 years of captivity, but I've got a plan for you. And when you're a lifter, you're able to give people encouragement that even though you may be in captivity right now, in bondage, in poverty, in an abusive situation, God's got a plan and God's got a purpose for you. And then finally, the third one is launch. Over these last couple of years, we've, you guys have helped us launch people. Since March of this year, we, as I mentioned, we've certified 10 innovative leadership life coaches in the women's shelter. And these coaches are not only affecting the residents, but they're affecting their families and their friends. So Paul wrote and prayed for the church of Ephesus, and he said, may the eyes of your understanding be enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. Hope in the Bible means a confident expectation that a promise from God is going to come to pass. The word hope as being used to, to present a passage. It's, it's that you may know the ground on which rests the expectation in your heart. So the question for us when we came to Harrisburg was, what are we really resting our expectations on? Is it the image and the vision and the dream that we had? Or is it the image and the vision and the dream and the plan that God had for us? Often we refer to our ministries as our calling, but actually there's two callings that comes to every believer, every person. First, there's a calling out of darkness and into the marvelous light. That's when you get saved. And then the second calling is what the apostles went through. You find that in Matthew, the third, third chapter, how Jesus called all of his disciples and followers to him. Then the Bible says he appointed 12 that they would be with him and then from being with him he would send them out 
Matthew 3rd, in fact, I'll just read it. It says, then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sickness and to cast out demons. So when we answer the call to him, as my wife and I were, were really required of the Lord to do, we, re, we answered the call to him and then he sent us to Harrisburg to preach and he empowered us to heal sickness and to cast out demons. But it's all been founded in this. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. I wanted to share all of that with you today before I pray, and I wanted to say this to you. You guys have meant the absolute world to us. This is the only church that my mother in love will come with us to. <laughs> We're asked to speak at many different places, and this is the only safe place. The only safe place. She comes from Stilton and Harrisburg. She is one of those people, or was one of those people that we're talking about, that's been abused and been hurt and been had religious bondage dumped upon them and placed in chains, rituals and rules and family secrets and all that stuff. And little did she know that God was going to take her little girl who heard her fighting with her dad, who watched her parents divorce, separate and eventually divorce, who as a teenager just had it in her heart that she wanted more. She gave her heart to the Lord and had a desire for more. She could have settled into the, the typical Harrisburg young girl's life of being angry and rebellious against God because my parents split up. But she wanted more, so she took a chance her aunt, who has now passed away, paid for her a one-way ticket to Oral Roberts University. She had no financial aid. All she had was an acceptance letter. But she just knew there was more. Can you imagine being 19 years old, getting on a plane, going one way, flying across the country, and you have no idea what's going to happen to you when you get there? But the desire for more was so strong that she laid it all on the line. And there she met on the second or third day of freshman orientation, a young man from St. Louis, Missouri. And our initial meeting was not anything to write home about because when we were introduced to each other, I didn't hardly say anything to her. And she said, aren't you going to speak? <laughs> I said, hi, just like that. But God knew that what he was going to do with these two broken lives, my family, her family had been crushed through divorce. My family had been crushed by death. While my mom was pregnant with me, seven months pregnant, 
Her baby boy died by food choking accident. Two months later, I was born. Fast forward some 18 years, and the child who was born in the midst of death is now meeting a girl who's coming out of the destruction of her family. And God set us on a journey of healing. First of all, healing for one another. We made a pact when we reached a place of impasse and we couldn't understand each other. When I would say things that were offensive to her and she would say things that were offensive to me because our cultures were so different. But we made a pact that I'm gonna choose to believe that you love me. That even though you said that, and even though you did that, you meant it for my good. We just don't know how to communicate yet because we got all these barriers to get past. And I share this with you today because you're my brothers and sisters, you're family. And it's never in our intents or our hearts or ever in the things that we share and teach and bring to you here to bring offense, to bring division. If it ever were to get to the place where the things that we have to say would cause division in the house of God, because we've been there before like some of you, things that we shared and, and taught, if they cause division, then we'd need to step out of the way because that's how it must happen. The world must see the church get this together. We can't operate the way that the world does. When we don't understand, when we conflict, we gotta hold on to the pact. And so I apologize in the ways and uh, that things that we've shared and said where it caused offense or misunderstanding because that's how it's supposed to be. And as I share that with you, I say this because we're all each other got. We're all we got. I can't run to the world. I don't have any friends there. I don't have any family there. This is all we got. And if we don't make it work, then how can we, how can the world look at us and have any hope and expectation? So I say this to you because I feel like the Apostle Paul in those words to Timothy, I want to encourage you to continue in the things that you've learned, the things you've been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and this moment, this holy moment before you. We thank you, Lord God, for how you have demonstrated to us these three aspects of listening, of lifting, and launching. You heard our cry, and you responded. You lifted us out of the pit, as the psalmist said, placed our feet in a solid place. You called us to you, and then you launched us. You sent us. And all of us in this room, Lord, we thank you so much for, lifting, for listening to us, lifting us, and launching us. And we say, Lord God, right here and now, help us as your people to do the same in our families, to do the same with one another, to do the same with folks in the community, to do the same with the people we work with every day, to listen to them, to lift them, 
and by your power to launch them into their purpose. We yield to you in all things. We say yes to you in everything. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I'm the clay. We're the clay. Mold us and make us after your will. While we are waiting, yielded and still. Yes, Lord. Help us, Lord God, to be true models of your love and your grace. hear this verse of scripture let there be no strife I pray thee for we be brothers we are brothers I share these things not only because of what may have happened between us but because I know that there are some relationships and pastor friends that I have in Harrisburg that I, I need to get things straight with I haven't understood, always understood their ministry, uh, why they do what they do and why they say what they say. And I just feel like there's such an urgent urgency for us in the body to let's, let's work that out. You know, there are, you know, and some of my pastoral brother friends, you know them yourself, and I want to get it straight. I don't know what they're teaching and why they're teaching that. I don't know why they're saying what they're saying and doing what they're doing, but I don't want to continue in that practice of, oh, well, let's not fellowship with them anymore because I don't know what they're doing. I want us to model what it means to be one. And one doesn't mean we always understand each other. It means that when there's a misunderstanding, okay, let's work that out, that out. Let's do like Paul and Peter had to do. You remember? And when they had great conflict in the church and they all gathered together and they talked about it. How are we going to work this out? How are we going to deal with all these Gentiles coming in here? And they got all these strange doctrines and beliefs. How are we going to work that out? And I believe that we must do it here in our time in the 21st century. Bless the Lord.